this series called Solomon and the Queen. And we would kind of put a lower heading under that, a similitude of Christ and sinners. That's what we're looking at. Chapter 10, 1 Kings, verse 1, And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. Excuse me. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table, the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold, and of spices very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps and also and for psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Again, we're looking at this as stated in the similitude of Christ and sinners, Christ meeting or coming into the presence of sinners as the queen here came to the presence of Solomon. And we're looking at the queen in particular, having looked already at Solomon as a type of Christ or a similitude of, of Christ. And we're looking here in verse 2 concerning her. Several things we have already discussed Just briefly to mention, she had heard about and of the fame and the news of Solomon. She didn't just hear about and not do anything, but she came to see for herself. And then coming to see, she was prepared with hard questions to prove him in that regard. And she came with a very great train of very valuable things. And we've looked at that and analyzed it from the view of all of us who are sinners saved by grace and those who are lost when they come in contact with Christ, which today is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They hear about Christ. That's where it ends with many. They just hear about. They have no interest. 
They are skeptical, are not much skeptical, not much curious, and they don't pursue it. But there's always curiosity, skepticism, doubt, faithlessness, and unbelieving to every sinner. That's how we all come in contact with the gospel. However, there is that which interest enough either out of curiosity or skepticism to cause one to examine, consider, think, meditate, read, listen more about Christ. And then some who are really skeptical want, as those in the New Testament, to, through skepticism, put hard things against Christ, the Bible, and the gospel to prove that it's not true. So each one of these things is a step further in an examination of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and God's word. And last time we talked about how that all sinners who do this, whether they end up being converted or remain in a state of unbelief, as sinners we naturally possess a self-righteousness of our own, which reminds us of that by looking at she came with a very great train of very valuable things. And again, we covered this last time. Anybody that didn't hear that sermon, we'd refer you back to it. But simply put, Jesus said, strive to enter in at the straight gate, for there will be many that will try to enter in and cannot. And the reason sinners cannot enter into the straight gate is they will not let go of their valuable stuff, their self-righteousness or whatever it is. It's again like having a suitcase too big to go through the door. And the gospel says, let it go. Come as you are. Let go of your self-righteousness. Let go of your ancestry. Let go of whatever is hindering you and pursue after Christ and Him alone. But that's the thing that sinners cannot do nor are willing to do except by the grace of God. Now, we come to something else today, but before I get into that, I want to say that usually this is sadly where it ends with most sinners and the gospel. They hear about Christ they look into it a little bit. They may examine, quote-unquote, the religion of it. They may look at Christianity a little harder. They may read a little bit more about the Bible. They may go to church a little bit. But they never let go of their self-righteousness, uh, like the rich young ruler of their wealth, or whatever it is they're holding on to. They don't let go of it, and it ends right there by them doing literally what the rich young ruler did, going away sadly or grieved. Some comment like, well, Jesus is just not for me. Or Christianity's just for not for me. Or I just don't believe it. I just don't think the Bible's true. Whatever it may be. Sadly, we know that that's usually where it ends with most sinners right there. It did not end there with the queen. And to God's elect and all who will believe and come to inherit eternal life, it does not end there. There's something more. The queen, it says, after this, the latter part of verse 2, we talked about the great distance, the great time, and the great trip that she made to get there. 
She was getting closer and closer all the time, but finally she got there, and it says, when she was come to Solomon. Now, I want you to think about that. When she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart, and this woman's life was transformed. Okay? So she became into the personal acquaintance of Solomon. She literally heard his words, was in his presence. It was a more intimate thing, and it was something that changed her life forever. And I want to say to you, I don't believe it just changed her life from a human perspective. I believe it changed her life from a spiritual perspective. So it's very easy to make this comparison or this similitude of sinners because we're not taking something that was totally physical or natural or human and making it spiritual She had, I believe, if you'll allow me to say it, a spiritual experience with Solomon. In fact, I tend to believe that she was saved. That's personal. But nobody has asked, but in case you do, I'll tell you why. First of all, in verse 1 it says, She heard of Solomon and particularly concerning the name of the Lord. We covered this. She had a spiritual interest. I don't know what she knew. Didn't know. But I know when she got there, she learned a lot. She saw a lot. And she learned a lot. Down at verse 5, it speaks there of uh, not just the management. Don't be caught up with just the way the servants served, the way they ate how orderly, how perfectly arranged all that was. But notice also it says, lastly, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. She saw Solomon's devotion and loyalty in action, what she had only heard about, and it intrigued her before. But it really impressed her when she saw the devotion and loyalty of this individual. And then her confession is, in verse 6 and 7, we've read several times, I've heard about it. I didn't believe it. I saw it, and it is above and beyond anything I could have imagined or heard about. Yet the half was not even told. Now, furthermore, not just that, but in verse 9, notice this. She says, Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee. I mean, you know, she's not just saying, man, you're the wisest guy I've ever seen. I mean, you know more about politics and economics and science and everything. No. The testimony that she gives is of a spiritual nature. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delight thee, to set thee on the throne. She understood the sovereignty of the issue. She understands Solomon was just a man, but God blessed this man with this wisdom. He set you. He delighted you. He set you on the throne. This is the God that's loved Israel forever. This is the God that because He loved Israel made you king to do judgment and justice to the people that He loves. I mean, this is spiritual stuff here. This is not romper room Sunday school. This is is important stuff that she's saying. 
And then, of course, in verse 10, she gave willingly unto him. So, so all of this, you'd have to be blind to read this and think that this woman's life was not by this experience changed forever. Changed forever. And that's the point we want to deal with today. What makes the difference in those that hear the gospel and do the things we talked about and those that go further and have their lives transformed by Christ and the gospel? Well, I believe I can share it with you. That latter part of verse 2, the difference is she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Now, I want you to focus on that. That's our message today. If she had not done this, her life would not have been transformed and she would not have been left as if there was no more spirit in her. And the need of sinners, of all sinners, is to commune with God. And I want to be very brief but very clear here. Communion with God was lost in Genesis chapter 3. Therefore, you and I were born into the world as all have been born into the world. Every child that's ever been born, beginning with Adam and his first child, was born into the world out of communion with God, out of fellowship with God. And the great need we have is to be back in communion with God. But the communication line has been broken because of sin. The fellowship line has been broken because of sin. She communed with him of all that was in her heart. And it says he answered her. That's what it means when it says told her all her questions. And there was not anything hid which he told her not. But again, first of all, let's note this fact that, as I said before, when she was come to Solomon. You know, sinners aren't saved by being distant from Christ. You're distant from Christ when you hear about Christ. You're distant from Christ when you're trying to prove the Bible or Christ or the gospel with hard questions. But in order to be saved, you've got to be like Nicodemus and come to Jesus. It, salvation is personal, is what I'm saying. It is intimate. It is one-on-one. You may be sitting in a crowd, but you're not saved with a crowd. It's one-on-one. The instances in the Gospels are too many for me to even begin here. But one-on-one with Christ is where salvation is. You can't have the baggage. You can't have somebody else tagging along or a helpmate or anybody else. No, salvation is intimate, personal with Christ and the sinner. And so this is very important that when she was come to Solomon in that respect. And, you know, here again, think of that rich young ruler. He came... He come into the presence of Christ, but he went away, didn't he? It's very sad. He did not have that intimacy with Christ 
that resulted in leaving his baggage at the straight gate and going in just as he was. However, to kind of capture this distance intimacy here, let's think of it in this. Let me give you another example. You remember when Christ went into Simon the Pharisee's house to eat a meal. And the woman of the city came. I referenced her last week, I believe. She came behind Jesus and poured ointment upon his feet, washed his feet with her tears, kissed his feet, dried them with the hairs of her head. Okay, Jesus was in this man's house. And there were other people in there also. But nobody in that room was any closer to Jesus than that woman. And I'm not talking distance. The Pharisees said, if he knew who this woman, what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. You see, he manifested, even though he was in the same room with Jesus, he was a long ways from Jesus. The spiritual context. She was closer to Jesus than anybody there because what she was doing was in a sense what this queen is doing. She was communicating. She was, she was communing with Jesus the Savior. And you know what the amazing thing about that is? She never said a word. You read that. She never said one word. She never put a question for Jesus. She never asked anything of Jesus. It wasn't her words. It was her actions. She communed with him. And Jesus communed with her because you know what he told her? He knew all about her. And he said, her sins, which are many, you know, she loved much. Thy sins are forgiven. There was an invisible communication. Isn't that marvelous? That's the grace of God. It doesn't take words. Words are fine. You know, sinners can utter all kinds of words requesting the Lord to save them, but you don't have to say them out loud. Out loud words never saved anybody because you believe with a heart. You repent with a heart. And that woman communicated. Uh, Can I give you another example? What about the woman, uh, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, you see? If I can just, just get to him, If I can just touch the hymn, you see. So distance and coming to Christ by faith, and that's what we're talking about, is very, very important. What do we mean when we say commune? Let's define a term here. Well, literally, this word just simply means to speak, to converse, to talk, or to tell. Now, if you were coming 1,400 miles to see the wisest man on the earth and you were a skeptic and a doubter of what you had heard, you got a long, many miles, many days, and much time to think about what you're going to say, wouldn't you? I'm going to ask him about this. And I'm going to see what he thinks about this. And I'm going to put this to him, and I'm going to put that to him. And you know, I have found out, even in preaching and many other things in life, all that planning amounts to nothing. When it comes down to Sometime to do that, you forget about half of the stuff that you planned on and, and say stuff you didn't plan on and vice versa, right? I'm not saying it's not good to do that. But I'm saying it just doesn't always work out like we thought it would, does it? And I guarantee it's not that way when you come to Christ. But this woman conversed, spake, told what was in her heart. And it included, I'm sure, at the beginning, some hard questions. 
But the key thing here I want to emphasize to you is it doesn't say some things or a few things that was on her mind. Folks, it says all that was in her heart. And I want to say to you today, that, that's the difference between saved and lost. If you're a sinner and you're Christ, you come to Christ for salvation and you want to go to heaven and you confess some things, you'll die in the rest of your sins that you didn't confess. Christ doesn't take partial confessions. Christ does not accept partial admissions. You know, God is a God of it's all or nothing. And that's a remarkable thing. She communed with all that was in her heart, whether it was criticism, skepticism, riddles, trickery, whatever it was, she ended up telling all. Well, if you commune with everything that's in your heart, what, what would you call that? I'd call it a confession. You've revealed it all. In pursuant of that, I want to ask you this question. Who would do this? Let me ask you. Would you be willing to confess all that is in your heart? All that you've ever done? The heart is the darkest part of every one of us. Again, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? We don't even know the depths of the sin of our own heart. But from what you do know, who do you know? Who's your closest friend that you would be willing to tell everything? I, again, let this grip your mind. Not just some of the stuff, but every little detail of every little devious secret sin that we all harbor. And the answer bottom line is none of us are willing or able to do that in and of ourselves. I remember someone a long time ago uh, used to make the point of kind of along this lines of the sins that are you have and that people don't know about but that God knows. What about if like a marquee sign they were running across your forehead telling everybody? We'd probably all stay home under the covers, wouldn't we? I mean, the darkness of the human heart. So again, to admit everything, to reveal everything, and I want to use this word, literally to empty your heart of all of that, is something that literally is most inhuman. Now what we tend to do as sinners is scrape a little bit of that off the top and think we've really made a good confession. You know, most, most sinners communing with God do it either casually, superficially, or in desperation perhaps, but always only partially. It's human nature of every sinner to harbor 
and hold back that really bad, embarrassing, guilty stuff, we don't want anybody to know about that. And we don't confess that to God, even though God already knows about it. That, that's the state of sinners. That's the state we're in. And it's very sad, but I'm just telling you the truth today. And other religions, idolatry, some in Christianity and other faiths, there are confessions, but they're not complete confessions. The idolater is confessing to, to some God that doesn't exist, therefore couldn't hear anything or do anything if he confessed all or poured out his heart. And today some confess to an individual. Heart. See if it's on. Some confess to an individual, and it is to no avail. No avail whatsoever. So again, this conversing usually is a partial but not a total confession in that regard. And in fact, let's just look at an example of this, shall we? Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, very quickly. And verse... Okay, thank you. And verse 9. Luke 18 and verse 9. We're going to be brief here and quick, but this is a parable of certain which trusted in themselves their righteous, despised other, the, the publican and the Pharisee. And notice the Pharisee's confession as he prayed, notice, with himself. And that's pretty much what he did. He's praying to himself. I don't think God ever heard anything he said. Not if you get the sense of what I'm saying. God, I thank you I'm not other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like this publican. I fast twice a week, give tithes all I confess, uh, so forth and so on. I mean, that's how much, of it, how much of his heart, let me ask you, is he really emptying out before God? Nothing. Nothing. He hadn't even he hadn't even he hadn't even got hardly anything out of that. The publican simply says, standing afar off, not lift up his head to heaven, smote upon his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. There's an individual who, without going into detail, is pouring out or emptying or communing with God in the right way. Exactly the right way. As I forementioned said, the woman in Simon the Pharisee's house did the very same thing. She conversed emptying herself of her sins, laying them upon Christ and having her life changed forever, being converted. I think there's a similarity here also of what this means with the Samaritan woman. Remember that? That woman had a bad past, didn't she? Jesus knew all about it. Knew all about it. And he said, call your husband. She said, well, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I know you know the one you're with now is not your husband, but you've had quite a few, you know, this, that, and the other. When she ran into the city, she said, is not this the Christ? Here's a man that's told me all that I ever did. She wasn't denying the sins of her heart. By that statement, she was confessing he knows all. You know, there's a conversing there. But let me capture it for you in another way from the Old Testament briefly, if I may. And I'll, I really like this uh, statement that is made in 1 Samuel, one of the greatest prayers of all the Bible by Hannah in 1 Samuel. 
and we want to look at <clears throat> verse one, uh, chapter one. I'm sorry, and verse fifteen. And the scripture says there, Hannah answered, she's answering Eli who thought she was drunk and accused her. So, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Now, that's the kind of communion that sinners need with God. If you're going to be saved, that's what it's going to take. If you have been saved, that's exactly what happened. At some point in your conversion, or you're not converted, there was an acknowledgement of sin, a confession of sin, and a repentance of sin, and you didn't hold anything back. When you said, God forgive me, you meant for it all. No harboring of secret sins back. Not something that, well, I'm just too ashamed to tell God about. No, you were ashamed enough and guilty enough. You know it all had to be confessed, and it was confessed. Pouring out her soul. Emptying of the heart. That's the communication, the communing with God that is needed. And who did that in the Bible? What I would say, the best example or better than anybody else. Nobody but David probably. I mean, we have the record of the Psalms. And no wonder that the Scripture God says that the Scripture says that was a man after God's own heart because you know why? David was so willing to share his heart. That's it. I mean, there's nothing like Psalm 51 in the Bible except in Psalm 51. I mean, let's look at it quickly. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against thee the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And on and on it goes. He held nothing back. He made no excuse. He blamed no one else. Now how is it that some sinners can do this and others are unwilling to do this? Well, the answer is simple. It's not a human thing that causes some to do it and others not to do it. The only ones who empty or will say as David did here, I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is ever before me, is those who have been convicted so by the power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. That's the difference. That's the difference. That's what makes the difference. And literally... This is what we call transparency. I get so sick of hearing that word. That's, uh, that seems to be one of the most hypocritical words of our generation, is it not? I mean, whether it's politicians or people in religion, they talk about transparency, and I don't think they even know what the word is because they're not transparent. But they're claiming and shooting for transparency. Well, literally in the true sense of the word, the sinner, you've got to be transparent with God to be saved. If you were to confess every sin but one, you'd still go to hell. You see what I'm saying? No, you're willing to confess them all. 
And that's the fruit of being born again. Transparent with God. Was you transparent with God when you were saved? If you weren't, you're not saved. She emptied her heart to Solomon. And Solomon held nothing back, had all the answers. Literally, she got complete satisfaction of everything that was in her heart. And sinners who do that will find the same thing with Christ. The gospel answers everything. You know, those in the New Testament, the Gentiles, they were saved, but boy, they had still had a lot of answers, didn't they? They were misled, misguided, deceived about certain things. I read it to you in starting our service this morning. He wrote to the Thessalonians and said, don't, don't, don't be upset about this, about you know worrying about the people who saved and already died. No, it's all right. It's all right. They're okay. And I'm going to enlighten you on that subject. And, and the, the Bible does that. The gospel answers all the questions. Well, what about hell? What about heaven? What about our bodies? What about this? What about that? Just like her, nothing was too hard for Solomon. Solomon was able to completely satisfy her about everything. And the gospel of Christ is just that satisfying. Just exactly that satisfying. When sinners empty themselves of their sins to Christ, that's when real transformation takes place. Scripture there in Matthew's gospel chapter 10. That says this, verse 37 through 39. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and falleth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. What's Jesus saying? He's saying if you hold anything back, forget it. Forget it. If there's any sin or anybody or anything you're going to hold on to, then I'm not for you. I came for sinners. And for sinners who will bear it all, confess it all, acknowledge it all, all of it. You know, in a sense... I'll get to that in a minute. Literally, I, I want to deal with this point right here, right now. The queen's emptying of her heart brought her to a place that the Scripture says there was no more spirit in her. Now, I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Because when a sinner is saved, that's essentially what's got to happen. You have got to be emptied of yourself to have Christ. You have got to die to yourself to have Christ in eternal life. It's like Jesus said about the seed, except it die, it can't live. Life can't come forth unless it dies. And unless the sinner dies to himself, his self-righteousness, and to his sin and confesses that all to Christ and lays it all to Christ and gives it all to Christ, there will be no eternal life. And the word here, this no more spirit in her, she obviously had no more questions. She was silenced. 
she was overwhelmed as much as any human being can be overwhelmed. She was struck with awe and admiration and all of it. And literally, I'm, I'm looking this up. I looked this up and it, it literally, from what I gleaned from this no more spirit, it means she was literally in an ecstasy of awe and admiration. Well, you know, when you confess your sins to Christ and ask for forgiveness, that's exactly where you're going to find yourself. When Christ grants forgiveness to the sinner and that burden is relieved and rolls off of your back, it is an ecstasy of awe and admiration that Christ can and does do that. Just that. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Can I share this with you quickly before? It reminds me of a boy that was possessed that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 9. In Mark's Gospel chapter 9, I can't have time to read all this, but in verse 17, there's a man there who says, Master, I, I have my son. He has a dumb spirit. It takes him, it tears him, he foams, he gnashes, he pineth. I've tried to get your disciples to do something about it. They couldn't. And uh, Jesus uh, comes, they said, bring him to him in verse 20. And notice what it does. The spirit tear him. He fell on the ground, wallowing, foaming. I mean, this, this poor child is, I mean, no telling what he suffered in the flesh because of this, right? He says, how long has he had this of a child? So it's always like all sinners, the problem's always been there. He says, it's cast him into fire and the waters and anything and everything like this, you know, tried to destroy him. Well, that's what sin does. And Jesus says, If thou canst believe all things are possible, straightway this amazing statement, the father of the child cried out, verse 24, and said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Look at this, verse 25. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit and said unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. All right, but notice what happened. The spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead it's just like he went to the brink of death before the demon left and many said he's dead he's dead Jesus took him by the hand lifted him up his robe folks I tell you today if that's not a picture of what salvation by grace is I don't know what is it shows the effect of what sin does the consequences of suffering, the agitation, the burden that the sinner feels. And until there's no more spirit in you and you find yourself hopelessly and helplessly lost, you're not a candidate for salvation. But like this guy, when we die to ourselves, confessing all and petitioning for forgiveness, that's when life comes. I just love that statement. There was no more spirit in her. Let's close. If you're lost today, or whatever your state may be, those who hear me today, however they hear me, have you ever communed, really communed with God about your heart? And if you have, how much detail did you go into? How much did you really admit? 
How much did you really confess? How much did you really reveal? How much did you really feel convicted and guilty and ashamed and embarrassed about? And I want to warn you, if you've played that game with God, that's all it was, a game. You deceived yourself. Solomon in his prayer in 1 Kings 8, 39 said, uh, when people come to the, then to the house, to the temple, and confess, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do, give every man according to his ways. And get this, whose heart thou knowest. God sees what's in us better than we can ever see our house. That's why Jeremiah says, who can know it? God can and does. And he knows if you've partially confessed or just done some off the top, you know, and hid the other stuff away and whatever. But salvation is like David's confession in Psalm 51. It's confessing it all. All of it. All of it. All of it. I mean, the song says, lay your all upon him. And those who are saved, that's what we've done. We've emptied ourselves of our sin, laid it upon our substitute, and believed in His ability to take it away. And from that time forward, when we think about that, like the queen, there's just no spirit in us because we just stand in a state of awe and admiration and humility that this grace could be bestowed upon a sinner such as ourselves. And today, if you are lost and you've never done this, you've never communed with God about your sin, you need to. This preacher's telling you and urging you to do that because if you do not commune with God here and now in your lifetime about your sin, you know what? One day he's going to commune with you about it. And then it's going to be too late. But right now, the Bible says in Isaiah 59, 1, his hand is not shortened or his ear is not deaf that he can't hear. His ear is open 24-7 for sinners who come to him confessing their sins. And if we confess our sins, we read it in Sunday school, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. The problem is sinners won't confess. Confess. And he can and he will save. I'm going to read two scriptures and I'm done. Psalms chapter 90 and verse 8 says this, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Again, I say to you, sinner, if you're lost, if you've never confessed your sins or repented of them to God, now's the time to do it because as that verse says, they are before God every day you commit them. A record of them goes into a book, and as in Sunday school this morning, one day God is going to bring them up to you, and those sins will testify against you. Now is the time to confess. And then we've been quoting Jeremiah 17 and 9 this morning about the heart being deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? The verse 10 that follows it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and the fruit of his doings. So again, this is going to come up, what's in your heart, the sins of your heart, the sins of your life, the things you've stowed away and harbored away, 
God knows they're there now. Others don't. But one day God's going to bring them to light and everybody's going to know. And then there will be a judgment for them. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation, I say to you, that the queen communed with the king of everything that was in her heart. In the last verse that we read there, verse 13, she went away back to her own country satisfied, changed, transformed. Her life would never be the same, and so it is with all of us who have believed. If you've not believed, may God give you that grace today.